Welcome everyone to episode 60 of Kowalski Analysis, designed to help you navigate the way and become the best version of yourself. I'm your host, Rob Kowalski. Hey everyone, drop me a, a comment. Let me know that you're here, that you're watching. Even if you're watching the replay, just say hello, say hi, say hey. If you're first time listening or watching, uh, with the podcast or even one of my my vlogs, go ahead and let me know where you're watching or listening from. Drop them in the comments. I always like to know when the newbies are here and uh, where they're they're coming in from. So I'm really excited tonight. I cannot wait to talk to this guy. His name is Pastor Mark Driscoll. He's the founding and senior pastor of Trinity Church. Many people know Mark Driscoll from his days in Mars Hill, which we may or may not talk about. I'm not sure. But his new church, Trinity, is in Scottsdale, Arizona. He has a master's degree in exegetical theology, and he has spent the better part of his life teaching verse by verse through the books of the Bible, contextualizing its timeless truths, and never shying away from challenging, convicting passages that speak to the heart of current cultural dilemmas. I know he's uh, done some really uh, racy, I would almost go as to say, um, series on sex and he has opinions about drinking and i, I know that we're, we're even criticized by uh religious institutions or people in in the faith so i can't wait to talk to him about some of the stuff we're going to bring him in just a second but first i just want to announce my sponsors first i want to give you a, a thank you to my longest standing sponsor micah hughes a close personal friend of mine and he helps people achieve financial peace through real estate investing so whether you want to buy sell invest michael will come alongside you and walk you through the entire process you can give him a call at 443-532-8450, or you can email him at michaelhughes.com. And my newest sponsor, Advisors Mortgage, and they have a highly competitive pricing structure coupled with their state-of-the-art technology, their second none, and their commitment to guide you through the home buying process or the refinancing process. These guys actually do networking lunches all over the Baltimore area. I've been to one, and uh, one, this guy, Adrian White, who works with them, has become a new City Fan member and attended several events. Very cool guy. You can call him directly at 610-999-3448 or visit his website at awhite.advisorsmortgage.com. Okay, that is it. So now, no further ado, let's bring in Pastor Mark Driscoll. Cool. Let's just dive in, man. I, I wanted to just tell everyone um, really quickly why I was excited to talk to you and studying up on you, getting ready for this podcast. And I really love that you just did things a little bit differently than everybody else was doing it and, and saw a lot of people come to Jesus through it. And I just got mad respect for that. So I just want to tell you that first off. No, I appreciate that. Usually the prophets walk out of the woods and the guys with the clipboards and the uh, shirts tucked in and the Pleated dockers don't really understand that guy, but that guy's having a good time, so he's all right. Yeah, yeah. I, if I look back at the life of Jesus, I just think so many more people in the church world act like Pharisees than they do Jesus, because Jesus wasn't criticizing anybody. He was just doing his thing, and the, the Pharisees are so worried about what he was doing that they weren't doing anything. And I'm like, well, if y'all just got busy, you wouldn't have time to worry about what I'm doing. If you just ran your race, you wouldn't have time to worry about what I'm doing. It's true. And the religious critics like the Pharisees, they, they never got a crowd. So Jesus would get the crowd that they come pick a fight with Jesus and try and steal the crowd. And that religious spirit still exists to this day. You can either do something or be against somebody who's doing something. Those are the two ways to get attention. I love that. I was actually listening to one of your sermons recently about your, your new book, The Critical Theory. Yeah, it's free at realfaith.com. Yeah. And I just like how you were talking about how Satan was the original critic. He was in heaven and he was criticizing the way that God was doing things. And basically that spirit of that critical spirit is related to him. Can you expand on that a little bit? 
Yeah, there's God, he's creator. He's got everything set up the way that it should be. Satan comes along and he's the first critic. I don't like that God's in charge. I think I should be in charge. I don't like the hierarchy of heaven. I'm feeling oppressed. He's probably the first Marxist who thinks that there's oppression and he needs some sort of justice. So then he creates an insurrection and a rebellion. They declare a war on God. This is Revelation 12. And, uh, and ultimately God's team wins the fight, pushes him down to heaven. He takes the fight to Adam and Eve. And he's always trying to overturn order. He's trying to override authority. And as a result, his work just continues. And in our day, it's critical theory. And really what it is, it's the counterfeit of Christian theology. So everything God creates, Satan counterfeits. Everything God tries to build, Satan tries to break. And he's doing that now with the economy. He's doing that with vaccines. He's doing that with masks. He's doing that with gender and marriage and sexuality and parenting. And it's a war on every front. And over it all, there's this big ideological commitment of critical theory, which I'm very convinced is responsible for the apostasy of our generation. I think younger evangelicals in particular, they're going woke in massive numbers, which is the counterfeit of being born again. And I think it's a pruning for the church and we're going to see who the real believers are, but it's a little sheep and the goat separating season right now, for sure. Man, that's wild. So what do you, do you think can turn it around? Do you think anything can turn it around for the church? Or we have to plan to like at the point of no return. What, what I, I was going through Romans. I preach, I preach through books of the Bible. I just turned 51. It's crazy. I've been a senior pastor more than half my life, preaching mainly through books of the Bible in cities where nobody wants to hear it. So that's been fun. Every day you're like in a head on collision and hope the airbag deploys and try again tomorrow. But I was going through Romans and it talks about apostasy, People who claim faith, uh, they'll profess it, but they don't practice it. And then there's a pruning. And those who are not believers are exposed. Those who are believers then know who is on Team Jesus. And then there's a harvest. And so I think we're in that pruning period. And I'm actually not discouraged by it. I don't think that there are less Christians. I just, we're, we're figuring out who the real Christians are. And once you know who the real Christians are, then who's on your team. It probably was really helpful for the disciples when they figured out Judas isn't on. And now that we know who is on the team so that we can go forward and do the ministry that God has us to do. So there was even a pruning around the time of Jesus' ministry. And, and then there was a clarifying of who was for Christ. And then we see in the book of Acts, a massive harvest. So I'm not discouraged. Uh, before you can have fruitfulness, you need to have a season of pruning. I think that's what we're in right now. Yeah, so good. I was, I'm actually working on a book called Go, and it's about just the, the shrinking church problem for the most part. I think that God has given us a solution to it. I'd love to tell you about it sometime, actually, off the record. But the average church leads less than 10 people to Jesus a year, and it's just somewhere we went really wrong because <laughs> the, the early disciples acts like you mentioned they added to the number daily those who were being saved yeah. so at a minimum you should be growing by 365 a, a year and i heard you say something about not being seeker friendly and you're like the problem is you said we should be seeker unfriendly meaning like because the gospel is so offensive and i thought like, we watered it down so much that it's like like you know all you gotta do is slip your hand up and almost like there's no change that needs to happen and yeah versus Jesus tried to talk people out of following him. If you read the scripture, then if we just stuck to that line, yes, there would be less people, but the less people could do so much more because we would lower the bar for everybody. Don't you think that? Yeah, no, I, the shortest profession of faith in the New Testament is Jesus Christ is Lord. And Lord means your whole life now gets a hard reset according to his principles. Everything from your values, to your words, to your finances, to your sexuality, to your marriage, your family, everything gets a hard reset. And so 
everybody wants their sins forgiven. And so, yeah, if you're like, do you want your sins forgiven? Sure, that's the spiritual equivalent of socialism. Would you like someone else to pick up your tab? Well, that sounds great. <laughs> Would you like to be responsible for your own life and make the changes that the Lord demands and commands? No. And so I, I think what we have is a lot of people who want Jesus as Savior, but not as Lord. And yeah. the truth is, he's not Savior unless he's also Lord. It's a package deal. What was that like for you? Because you became a Christian, what, 18, I think I heard? Or I was 19. I was in college. Yeah, my dad was a union drywaller. I grew up blue collar, working class, jack marginal Catholic. And I didn't have a crisis. So I'm in college. I was most likely to succeed in student body president in high school. And I'm healthy and I'm in college on scholarship. And I got a gorgeous, wonderful, amazing girlfriend who's now my wife of almost 30 years and my best friend. And I just came to the conclusion that if Jesus rose from the dead, then he's in charge of my life and he has every right to tell me what to do and not do. And so my conversion was less about feeling this deep need for forgiveness of sin and more about being rebellious and not under the authority of my creator. And so for me, it was like, all right, if I'm going to be a Christian, like I got to stop sleeping with my girlfriend. I, I got to learn the Bible. I, all these things need to happen. And honestly, the Holy Spirit gave me a deep desire for those things. It's like, I actually really do love Jesus. I like him. And I actually really do find the Bible the most fascinating thing I've ever learned in my whole life by a long shot. And so the Holy Spirit just rehardwired my desires. And so the things that God commanded me to do all of a sudden were the things that I wanted to do. Didn't mean it wasn't a struggle or a fight, but the deepest desires in my heart just changed. And yeah, I just turned 51 and I got saved at 19. And I got married at 21, became a pastor at 22, became a senior pastor at 25. And uh, I've never had a season of rebellion or prodigal since 19. I don't think I've ever had a day that I didn't pray and read the Bible. And it's not because I have to, it's because I want to. Sure. And to me, that's how you met Jesus. Your want to changes. Right. Yeah. So I had a really radical, first I had a radical conversion experience, but then I did a complete 180. I was went from being very promiscuous to being abstinent for six years. I ended up backsliding. I assumed God was going to give me a wife at some point. When it didn't happen, I inadvertently fell back into sin. But it was the same for me where I was like, from the moment I met him and I knew that it was real, I was just like, whatever you say, I'll do. Took the Bible very literally and attempted to, to be, and I was very different. And outside of that period of backsliding, which didn't happen on purpose, I, I did have a complete 180 in my life. So how did that happen for you though? How were you introduced to it at 19, just in like friends or? In high school, I met this gal, Grace, and I say there's two kinds of gals you meet. There's the, the gals you can live with and then the gal you can't live without. I met her at 17. That's the gal I can't live without. And Every day since, I praise God, I get to be with my dream girl. And my goal is to grow very old with her and pray over our grandkids and tell stories of God's faithfulness to our kids and grandkids. So she was a backslidden pastor's daughter. I was an unbelieving moral Catholic guy, no drugs, no alcohol. I only beat up guys who deserved it. So I was a really moral guy. And, and then we started becoming friends and she came to the conclusion that I probably wasn't a Christian and she wasn't walking faithfully. So she bought me a Bible, gave it to me as a graduation present. I went off to state university and I was the first man in the history of my family to go to college. We were blue collar, hardworking, red potato farmers, diesel mechanics, construction worker kind of family. 
And in every class at State University, it's where I was introduced actually to critical theory, whatever happens in the university is usually 10 to 20 years ahead of what happens in the culture. The university's upstream and it's indoctrinating attorneys and professors and politicians. And, and every class was trashing Christianity. And it was the beginning of the, the politically correct speech, safe zones and all of that. So it was the early days of critical theory. And so I decided I'm just gonna read the Bible for myself and see what it says, cause I'd never really done that. And God saved me reading the book of Romans and Romans one, I'm a Catholic boy like Luther. I'm in Romans one and God saves me. And I, I don't know exactly when I got saved, but I know when I knew that I was saved. And that was in Romans one, it says, and you were called to belong to Jesus Christ. And I was just like, I felt like God was just like, son, uh, you're adopted today and you got a new dad and you better do what your dad says. So to me, that was the transition. I called Grace, she moved out. We, uh, we stopped sleeping together. We started going to church together, praying together, going to Bible study together, and then got married between our junior and senior year of college. So my little joke is always, if a girl buys you a Bible, buy her a ring, that's just our deal, so. That's awesome. So what was that like? Cause you were senior pastor in 25. You obviously had a like meteoric rise in it. So I, I had heard you talk about being clinically depressed for 10 years. You said, and I don't remember where it was. I heard that, but I was like, I, I've had experienced some of that myself building this uh, organization called city fan that I'm part of parachurch ministry, basically. And, um, yeah, just, what was that like, man? Cause you went from basically, you went from being like probably nobody really knew who you were to now you're in the public eye on big stages, leading all these people. Like, what was that like? Yeah, it was bizarre. So I just start preaching through books of the Bible late on Sunday night in the people's Republic of Seattle to a bunch of grunge punk rockers in the mid to late nineties. The first year, I mean, we, our church, maybe, I don't know, had a hundred, 200 people. I don't even know opening night. And then it went down to half and it was little and the first year, I think we brought in less than $100,000. So this is not some global enterprise. This is me for three years as an unpaid volunteer, late Sunday night as a church plant, just teaching through books of the Bible, hoping to see young men meet Christ, because that's really my heart and my calling is to see young men meet Christ, and then change families and legacies and generations. And then pretty soon, it's national media starts showing up, stories start getting written, and I'm like, I don't come from the evangelical subculture. I, I never went to youth group. I don't understand evangelicalism. I just met Jesus and I, I just am teaching the Bible. I'm not sure where I'm at theologically. And I know I'm evangelical, but all the different little teams and nuances, like, I don't know. Right, and so, yeah, I started getting a lot of attention and probably because the message I was preaching in a place like downtown Seattle was so counter-cultural. Right. Um, but to me, it's, that's what God said. And my job is to deliver the mail, not to edit the mail. That's my job. And whatever the, I'm just a fullback by nature. And that is head down, hit the hole and head down, hit the hole. And if you get knocked out, get back up, head down, hit the hole. And so I did that for 18 years and we saw around 10,000 people baptized, which was incredible. And we didn't have any kids when we started. And this most recent um, season, I'm in Scottsdale, Arizona. We planted a church five years ago. And really the, the difference in this one is I'm now a father and I've got five kids and the kids named the church. They did the demo. They all served Jesus in the church. And it's a family ministry that we all do together. And uh, it's life-changing. It is such an, the only thing better than seeing Jesus uh, use you is seeing Jesus use your spouse and kids. It's the best thing in the world. And, and yeah, for me, it was a, a seasonal depression for me that kind of 
long winter, 50 degrees, raining every day, strong wind, no sunbreak. To me, it was always uh, seasonal affective disorder and physical mm -hmm. depression. Mm -hmm. and, and now I live in Scottsdale, Arizona. So pray, brother. My Bronco was built. I broke the axle on my Jeep. Four, I broke the axle. I broke four cams in my Jeep off-roading. So I got rid of my Fisher-Price edition Jeep. And now my Bronco is supposed to be here next month, but apparently my Bronco's got COVID and it's waiting for a roof. So as soon as it gets here, I'm taking the roof off so Jesus could see how happy I am to be in Scottsdale, Arizona. That's my so, dream vehicle. Yeah. It's Bronco's it, my dream vehicle. Yeah. Okay. I've got, okay. Now do you want, I've got a backup order. I've got an order for a Badlands. <laughs> if you want it, I'll give it to you. You can order a Badlands. It'll be delivered next year. How you're saying, give it to me. I'll give you the, no, I can't buy the Badlands, but I'm I can kidding. give you the, I can give you the reservation order. Yeah, no, I don't, I don't, unfortunately I'm not in a position to get it yet, but hopefully. All right. So. For those that are watching the podcast, if you would like <laughs> to help a middle-aged white man see his dreams come true, you need to open a GoFundMe for Rob's Bronco account. I'm trying, brother. I'm right, trying. What color is it? I like the baby. The one I got, the first, I got the first edition. It's lightning blue. They only do the Raptor, the Bronco and the uh, Mustang in that color. Nice. So it yeah. is weird. I bought a vehicle I've never seen in a color I've never seen at a price I'm not sure of to be delivered at some point that I'm unaware of. So I yeah. hope this works out. That's New Testament faith right there, brother. There you go. All right. So I understand that like righteous anger is being angry at things that God is angry about. Yep. So can you elaborate on this and the difference between like sinful anger? So for me, actually, let me ask you this before you answer that. What's the most challenging verse in the Bible to you? Oh, love your enemy. That one's a real, I would like to watch a Liam Neeson film and apply it to my enemy. <laughs> Loving your enemy. Loving your enemy is tough, especially when you've got some real enemies. That's interesting. Mine, mine, mine is a gentle answer turns away wrath. So I was in the same vein. So I love yeah. you. You just talk about righteous indignation, righteous, righteous indignation versus sinful anger. Cause I struggle with that. Yeah. I think any, any sane heterosexual male who pays attention at some point is annoyed and frustrated by the world we live in. Um, especially with all the abuse of women and children and just the nonsense and the shenanigans that's going on. But very little has been written on Jesus' emotional life. So Jesus is perfect, of course, and he's the perfect example of what a man should look like. And so I did a deep dive study on his emotional life. There's about 60 verses, 50, 60 verses in the New Testament that talk about his emotional life. And he has the full spectrum of emotions, including anger and, uh, and righteous indignation. The number one emotion of Jesus is compassion. That's the one that's mentioned the most. So sometimes what religious people do, they say, well, there's holy emotions and unholy emotions. Not true. There's emotions in the spirit. There's emotions in the flesh. And anger is not a problem if it's in the spirit. It's a big problem when it's in the flesh. And, 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 and we're doing a podcast, but even most of what exists online is to trigger fear and anger. That's what it is. And the clickbait and the attacks and the swarming and the nonsense is really to just fuel fear and anger. And so a lot of people live in that cycle of fear and then responding in anger. And if you live there, it's not a healthy place to live. You can't be a healthy person. So if you're a person who lives in anger, you're probably not. If you visit it on occasion when it's not pertaining to your um, suffering, but to the suffering of someone else or the glory of God, then you probably got a healthier version of anger. If it's right. always about you, that, that's a brokenness and a selfishness. If it really is for someone who is being victimized, like a child that's being abused or a woman that's being abused, if you don't get angry, I think you've got a man, you've got a man with a broken soul. Right.
I guess it's like if you can do something about it. Like I, when you talk about all the clickbaity stuff, I don't even watch the news or read the articles anymore because I try to go with that Stephen Covey principle, the circle of influence versus the circle of concern. And so if I can't do anything about it, like all it's going to do is piss me off. And then I walk yeah. around pissed off all day. So I try not to concern myself with it, but I don't know if that's a good strategy or not. At the end of the day, the, num the amount of information on planet Earth is doubling every year, which you think of this year, all the nonsense. They say that fake news travels at six times the rate of real news. Spurgeon, an old preacher, once said, a lie can get around the world before the truth can get its shoes on. And that's now more true than ever. So you look at it next year, the amount of information will be double the total amount of information in human history up until the end of this year. So there just reaches a point where it's completely overwhelming. You don't know what's true or false. Everything is weaponized. Negative narratives are set. And at the end of the day, it's like, how do I be a healthy human being that loves the people who are in front of me? rather than not even seeing them because I'm on my phone just determining who or what is the enemy of the day that I'm supposed to be raging against. That's not a healthy way to live your life. Let's talk about, I wrote a book called Why Waiting Works a couple of years ago, and it was basically on the practicality of saving sex for marriage based off my failures, many failures in that area. But once I became to Jesus, I really started to understand it because I lived at polar ends of the spectrum. Um, I used to be a male stripper before I met Jesus. So I had a lot of casual sex. <laughs> I know, right? So Dude, I, know. I didn't know that. Wow. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. To go from that to Jesus is a, that's a change of Jersey. Yeah. You're yeah. on a different team then. Yeah, for sure. It was like a road to Damascus. I got baptized in the spirit. Nobody touched me or prayed for me. I just got baptized in the spirit when I was in Cancun, Mexico, 21 years ago. And, um, so I, that's when I was abstinent for six years. And now basically for the last 10 years, I've also been um, single and abstaining from sex. I did have two, two minor slip-ups, just isolated incidents that I don't want, really won't mention now. But so I had a very good, firm understanding of the practicality. And a lot of times I heard people talk about sex from don't defile the marriage bed and it's a sin and all the other reasons, but not like the way I understood it. So I wrote this book about it and I'd like to talk a little bit about that because I know one of the the... I think it was one of your early sermon series at, at Mars Hill was on sex and it was very racy. I heard and very detailed. I went through a book. Well, there's a book, there's a book of the Bible called the song of songs or song of Solomon. And it's 3000 year old. It's, it's poetic, it's intimacy, it's sex and marriage. And a lot of religious people struggle with it. Cause they're like, man, could that even be in the Bible? It's right. So in the ancient world, they wouldn't let anybody read it until they were married or 30 years of age. They're just like, that's, there's too much gunpowder in that. And so I preach through books of the Bible. And my question is always, why, are there any books of the Bible that we shouldn't teach? And if so, what are the criteria for that? Because different groups will have problems with different books of the Bible. Like certain people are like, let's get rid of first Corinthians because it tells us not to get drunk, sleep with each other. And we want to do those things. And so we got to be very careful that when we come to the Bible, if something in the Bible bothers or troubles us, we've got to assume that the problem is with us, not with the Bible. And so I preached through the Song of Solomon, did so in Seattle to a bunch of people who were single and non-Christian for the most part, and didn't have any concept of sexuality from a biblical perspective. And it's frank without being crass. It's poetic, but it's very passionate. And, and yeah, it's, but we saw a bunch of people get saved and a bunch of people get delivered. And part of it is don't be transformed to the pattern of this world, but uh, don't be conformed rather to the pattern of this world, be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Part of that is just so much of what we're taught from 
entertainment to social media to education. It really is just a brainwashing on sexuality and gender and identity and relationship and love. And so as a Bible teacher, I'm always like, how do we get God's mind about these things? Because I'm no perfect husband, I'm not Jesus, but since March 12th, 1988, I've been 100% faithful to the same girl and I love her with all my heart. And she held me and we prayed together this morning. And I would say that connecting at the soul level is even deeper than connecting at the body level. That's why people will sleep together, but they won't pray together. It's just, there's an intimacy there. And so for me as a Bible teacher, it's like, how do we get people to think biblically? And God's not against sex. He's for marriage. Yeah. That's in the same way that if you've got a fireplace at your house, the fire's great as long as it stays in the fireplace. (laughs) You take the fire out of the fireplace, you got yourself a real situation. And the passionate flames of marriage, therefore, or sex rather for marriage, once you get sex outside of marriage, you just start burning things down real fast. It's ugly quick. Guys, that is it for episode 60 of Kowalski Analysis. I apologize for a little bit of an abrupt ending there. But before we get off tonight, I just wanted to announce a giveaway that we're doing. Pastor Mark Driscoll was kind enough to give us up to 100 of his new books, Christian Theology versus Critical Theory, along with up to 100 of these sweet t-shirts. And they say, more fathers, less government, and they're super comfortable, guys. So what you need to do if you'd like to win one or receive one is just go ahead and comment in the, the, the comments below, wherever you're watching, specifically if it's on Facebook or YouTube, I know that I'll see it, but leave a comment and just say, give me that. G-I-M-M-E-T-H-A-T. Give me that. And we will go ahead and we'll send you a private message. We'll get your mail and address. Then we'll give you Mark's new book, Christian Theology versus Critical Theory, along with the sweet t-shirt. And guys, if you already haven't joined the Facebook groups, go over, join the City Fam community. We are growing by uh, new members are joining every day from all over the world. We also have the Waiting Works community. And you can find each of those. Uh, City Fam is at real friendswithbetterbenefits.com. Excuse me. And then the Waiting Works community is at reallovewaits.com. Both are free to join, and we would love to have you. So that's it, guys. Don't forget to subscribe if you're listening, and uh, leave a five-star review. I'd greatly appreciate it. We'll see you on the next episode. Oh, and let me just tell you this. Next episode is with a guy named Mitchell Eason. If you don't know who he is, he just got off the reality show The Circle. This guy is 23 years old. He is a stud. And guess what? He's a virgin. So I cannot wait to talk to him. Be sure to tune in next week. I'll see you then. Thanks.